You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Our guest today reminds us that Don Quixote called hunger la mejor salsa del mundo, the world's best sauce. What have we learned about appetite, hunger, and digestion in recent years? Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is science writer Jennifer Ackerman. She has written for National Geographic and the New York Times, among many others. Her new book is called Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, and Dream. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. I'm delighted to be here. Now, Jennifer, what's the difference between appetite and hunger? Well, we all know that appetite, that's the desire to eat, can occur even when we aren't hungry. Even if our stomachs aren't growling or empty, we eat because we're either tempted by the way food looks, smells, or tastes, or because we're bored. But hunger itself is determined by a real soup of chemical signals in the body. And among them is one called ghrelin, which is known as the hormone of hunger. It acts on the brain as a potent stimulant to eat. And people injected with ghrelin get very hungry and eat about 30% more than they normally would. Then there's a hormone called leptin, which is one of the hormones of satiety. And it's made by fat cells and seems to be the body's way of telling the brain whether or not our fat stores are sufficient so that it can match our caloric intake with our caloric expenditure. One of the things I loved about your book was how you divided things into time of day. And and I thought we talked this segment about midday, which, of course, lunch is a huge part of our midday. It's interesting to me how you describe the crosstalk between the brain and our digestive system. Can you tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. We've known for a long time that um, hunger originates in the brain. Even people who have had their stomachs removed still feel hungry. But recently, we've zeroed in on the the brain centers that are actually involved, and there are two, the hindbrain or the caudal brainstem and a cluster of about 5,000 or so neurons in the hypothalamus called the arcuate nucleus. And these brain areas read a real army of chemical messengers from the body, from the stomach, intestines, from the liver, and the bloodstream. And some of these chemical messengers are short-term signals that operate from meal to meal, and others are long-term. They keep track of the body's fat supplies and and tell the brain when they're running low so it can step up hunger. Now, you had mentioned ghrelin before, and, and one of the other things that's so interesting about your book is you go into where these words come from, and ghrelin is such a strange word. Where does that originate? It originates from the Old English gree, and I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's uh, It means to grow. And, yeah, I love uh, word etymologies, too. I think they have... Uh, they shed great light on, on our use of, of language, and especially in science. So when we talk about digestion, how do we actually select what to eat? Well, this is a very complex and, and obviously a very important matter. What we pick to eat depends on our, partly on our experience and our childhood associations, the, the experiences that we've had with food in the past, and, uh, and lots of other psychological factors. But the deep-down drive for foods with certain flavors, I think, in particular, sweet, salty, and the protein flavor, umami, that's one of my favorites, is rooted in our need for, for basic calories and essential nutrients. And sourness, we go for only selectively because we're really wired to avoid unripe or spoiled fruit. And also the very bitter, we actually avoid. We have some 25 
bitter taste receptors, and these are thought to have evolved to detect toxins in, in plants and other foods. So this is kind of maybe an evolutionarily protective mechanism to avoid sour and bitter? Exactly. Makes sense, especially little kids, of course, hate bitter, but they, they seem to, my kids anyway, like sour stuff. But I suppose if they're crawling around eating roots and vegetables, that they would avoid those potentially poisonous plants. That's right. I think so. Now, what is umami? I've never heard of that before. Umami is the protein flavor, and I, I, I believe it was discovered by a Japanese researcher, which is why it carries this name. What foods would have that flavor? Well, bacon and actually monosodium glutamate has a umami flavor. It's that meaty flavor that we all find so delicious. Now, in your research, what did you find with the connection between food and mood? This is a really interesting area of research. Some of it is very preliminary, but there's some good evidence to suggest that certain foods really do affect our moods, especially those loaded with omega-3 fatty acids. These are found in certain fish, like cold water sardines, salmon, tuna, and also walnuts. In fact, in in studies of rats, at least, the omega-3 seem to work as well as prescription antidepressants lifting mood, which I find really extraordinary, but only if they're used over the long term in your diet. In other words, it's not enough to eat you know, one meal a week of some kind of fish loaded with omega-3s. You really have to build it in more regularly. And there are are other studies that show that foods rich in fats like butter and oil can actually reduce the perception of pain, which I found fascinating. And that it may be because the, the pleasure of smelling, tasting, and feeling those fatty foods somehow triggers the body's production of its own natural pain-killing opioids. And what about everybody's favorite, chocolate? Yes, chocolate is, is certainly my favorite. And the study I found particularly engaging was one showing that not only that chocolate lift the mood of a pregnant woman, but also her baby. An extra reason to eat it. Yes, yes. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Jennifer Ackerman, recipient of literature fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Bunting Institute of Radcliffe College. We are discussing what happens before, during, and after a meal. Now, Jennifer, uh, what role does nausea play? Why and how we experience nausea is still really a big mystery. Here's another word derivation. It derives from the Greek word for ship. And so most of us have had experience with this motion sickness form of nausea. I had firsthand experience with the the root meaning of the word on a two-week voyage across a stormy Pacific Sea for a story I did for National Geographic. And it felt like the worst morning sickness you could imagine for for two weeks solid. But nausea can also be useful to the body in the role that it plays in learned aversion to certain poisonous foods. And here's another personal experience. My husband made a batch of potato salad with green potatoes once and had a very strong mint dressing that disguised the taste of the solanine, solanine, which is a poisonous alkaloid made when the potatoes green in response to overexposure to light so I ate this salad, and I ended up just sick as a dog. And now, you know, 20, 25 years later, I still can't contemplate having this dish again. Oh, that long. Now, in your book, you take us along in the journey as our meal works its way through our GI tract. And one of the interesting things to me is how do we know when we have had enough to eat? Well, we have stretch receptors in our stomachs that signal when we're full. 
But there are also, again, these chemical messages from the stomach and intestines that reinforce our stop eating message. And two in particular, CCK and PYY, play a key role. And you give people an infusion of these hormones, and they'll end up finishing up their meals earlier and actually cutting back on their intake. How quickly you feel full also depends on what you eat. Fibrous foods actually may trigger more PYY than fast foods made of refined carbohydrates. Ah, so another reason to eat healthily. Yes. Now, sometimes after consuming this wonderful midday meal, we have bad breath. Why is that? <laughs> Halitosis, it's called. Some research suggests that, it, that uh, bad breath is mainly the result of microbes living in the mouth, digesting proteins, and producing what one microbiologist describes as a bouquet of truly fetid substances. Wow. Well, now one of the statistics that amazed me in reading your book was the amount of bacterial cells that we carry in our body. Yeah, this is one of my favorite fun facts in the book. In terms of numbers, our cells are mostly microbes. By the time we're adults, we have 10 times more microbial cells than human cells. And the reason we don't look more microbial is because of the size of those microbial cells relative to our own. We have much bigger cells. But I think it's just fantastic that we're this sort of composite of different species that, you know, we're more like whole ecosystems than individual organisms. And we really couldn't survive without these microbes. They help us digest food and extract nutrients. And they may even regulate our fat storage and help determine our body weight. And how can these bacteria determine our body weight? Well, it has to do with the composition of the microbe populations that we carry around in our intestines. These different species affect the number of calories we absorb from food and also how many of these calories are transformed into fat. And there's one species in particular, Bacteroides theta, which appears to improve the body's efficiency in harvesting calories from our food and in depositing the extracted calories in fat cells. So the take-home message of this research is really that the amount of calories available in the food we eat may not be fixed but influenced by the nature of our gut microbes. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. You've taught us all about what happens in the midday of our life. Well, thank you. It was fun to talk. We've been discussing Jennifer Ackerman's latest book, Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, and Dream, with an emphasis this time on eat. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host. We welcome your questions and comments please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 